0: All right, brothers and sisters, invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation as we're continuing our series in Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verses 13 through, uh, excuse me, 7 through 13. Revelation chapter chapter 3, verses 7 through 13 will be our scripture reading today. And if you are all there, I invite you to follow along as I read. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial which is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we ask as we've read your word, we pray that your word will do as we sang earlier, that it will speak. That it will speak to us. And that it will challenge us and encourage us and call us to to live the way that you call us to live to those who are called by your name. And God, we pray that even in these words, that there would be something that would challenge uh, those who have yet to make that decision to come to faith in you. God, that even now your word would uh, come to light in their eyes and in their hearts, that they would see the truth and turn to faith in you. So God, we ask your your Word to do its work this morning, and we pray this in Jesus' mighty name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray, Amen. Amen. This morning, I have um, my voice is a little strained this morning, and you're <laughs> a couple of chuckles there. Oh, is it the rain? Oh, is it the cold weather? No. No, it's the Dodger game. So, uh, that doesn't change the fact that, that this morning we have a, a one point sermon. And so it has nothing to do with my voice. My, I, I had planned on a one point sermon today. And, uh, so I think that this is the, uh, maybe the second time in Redeemer's history that we've had a one point sermon. Um, there's been three point sermons. There's been 10 point sermons. There's been 12 point sermons, um, and so, uh, but today it's just a one-point sermon, and I think somebody said this better not be the last. Like, I'm well, going we to see more one-point sermons. Um, but here's here's the sermon for today, and we're, we'll get to the main point here in a little bit. But I, I want us to remind ourselves what we're doing. We're in the um, in the Book of Revelation, which is a vision that John sees of the resurrected Jesus. Who gives him a picture of an unveiling of what's going to happen in the future and also an unveiling of what's happening in ultimate reality. That God is in charge, that he rules and he will win despite what it looks like for the churches uh, who were under persecution and threat and difficulty and trial and trouble in the end of the first century. And in chapter one, John sees a vision of Jesus. In chapters two and three, Jesus addresses, uh, tells John, gives him commands, instructions of what to write down to the angel or messenger of each respective church. And we are now at the sixth church, the church of Philadelphia. And uh, six of the seven. So next week we get to the last of the churches, which is Laodicea. And it follows a typical pattern. We've seen this before. There's usually a description of Christ and there's a commendation. And then there's a a rebuke. Uh, So I have have this against you. And then there's a call to uh, salute, to solve that problem that he brings up in the rebuke. A call to obedience. And uh, there's a consequence if they disobey. A promise for the conquerors. And then a call to hear. He who has a word, uh, ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here. In this church, for the church of Philadelphia, there is no rebuke. There is only, condom, uh, there's, no, uh, there's no condemnation, there's a, a commendation. So the Philadelphian church shares that in common with the church in Smyrna, the second church that we saw. So the second and the, the next to last churches, Jesus has no word of rebuke for them. Uh, He just has a word of commendation for them. And that's not to say that that church was perfect. There is no perfect church. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way. uh, The purest churches under heaven. So the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. So there's no perfect church. You leave here to find a perfect church. You find one. Don't join it. You'll just mess it up. Right? (laughs) Right? Because there are no perfect churches. But it does say something about the church in Philadelphia that Jesus doesn't have a word of rebuke for them, but only uh, commendation and encouragement for them to carry on. So there's something in this church that's an example for us what a church ought to be. And so what is the commendation that Jesus has for them? What can we learn about the Philadelphian church? In order to answer that question, we're going to spend a little bit of time here kind of unpacking uh, a couple of words here and a couple of things that Jesus says, particularly in verses 8 and 10. So we've had a a class here on how to interpret the Bible. We talked about exegesis, right? To asking questions of the text. What is the the text saying? So bear with me. I want us to do a little bit of that work here, digging down to to see what this, this has to say so there's two questions in helping us understand this commendation he has for them there's two questions i think needs to be answered what is does it mean here in verses eight where um where it says behold that whole behold clause notice what it says there in verse verse eight he says i know your works Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. And then it resumes again. I know that you have. And then he goes on and continues the the sentence. Some of you may have a different translation. In in each English translation I look at, there's there's a couple of different ways that this can go. So let me show you the two options. And let me show you the one that, uh, and there's not a major distinction. But let me just show you kind of the the one that I, I tend to see as what, jesus is saying here to john Um, so here's the church of philadelphia it's in the inland part of the uh uh, asia minor um, with modern-day turkey um and verse 8 here in the esv it says i know your works okay which is how he begins all of this these parts he says behold i have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut and then the esv kind of resumes this thought and says, I know that you, so it's almost like the behold part is a kind of a parenthetical statement. Like he says, I know your works, and I know that you are, and then he adds this kind of thing in the the middle, which seems it's almost kind of like Jesus is saying this as, as an aside, a parenthetical statement. And that the that, the Greek word there for that, is resuming what he says, Above, As a matter of fact, the the second I know there isn't in the Greek. So that's what they're saying is, well, maybe he's just kind of resuming this thought here. And this passage makes sense this way. Um, but notice what the New American Standard has for this. They see that word, uh, that Greek word for that. It uh, can also mean because or even since. We can, We'll see here in a moment. Um, And so the first one in the first case, then it's a marker of explanation. In the second case, it's a marker of cause or reason. So here it's saying um, I have put before you an open door because you have little power. He goes on to say and several other things. This is the one I tend to favor, but I think we get the meaning both ways. But first, the, the, the question is, well, what is the? is it that or is it because? Is it that or is it because? I tend to prefer because, but that doesn't change the, the ultimate meaning here. But I just think that that's an important thing for us to notice. Okay? So even if you want to, and you're, you could write even because next to it. So that's the first question. And so if you take it the second way, it's Jesus opens the door because... <laughs> The church at Philadelphia has little power, he goes on to say. I've opened this door because you have kept my word and you have not denied my faith. So those those three things. He opens the, the, the door because you have little power. You've kept my word and you've not denied my faith. So the Philadelphian church is praised by Jesus because they hold fast To his word, which we would say this is kind of synonymous for the gospel, it's for the word of God. They held fast to it, they've maintained their witness to Jesus. They don't turn their back on Jesus, they they acknowledge him before men, and as Jesus said, I will acknowledge you then before my Father in heaven. And and then the third part, even though you have little power, even though you have little power. So that's the first question. So it raises, kind of takes us to the second question. What does the open door mean then? So this open door, behold, I've set before you an open door, isn't just a parenthetical aside. This is uh, connected to what he's, the point he's making here. So now we're going to do a little study here on what does open door mean? There's a couple of... uh, Ways that this open door in the New Testament, there's a couple of things it conveys. The first thing it does is it conveys receptivity of people to Jesus as Savior or Messiah. And the second one is related to that. The the term open door gets used for the opportunity to share that good news about Jesus as Savior and Messiah. So let's I want you to to turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to look at a couple of verses here um, and to kind of trace this line of thought and see how what the rest of the New Testament passages say about this imagery of open door and what it's saying here and what it's what Jesus is connecting, making it say here. So Acts chapter five, I'll have you turn to two. We'll look at Acts chapter five and then again in Acts chapter 16. Okay, so Acts chapter 5 and Acts chapter 16. And by the way, this is so cool. This this whole thing that we're going to be looking at here. Um, Acts chapter 5, you know the story, this is the story of the early church. And after the day of Pentecost, thousands had heard the word of the Lord and come to Christ. And you started to see opposition start to break out. And Peter and John are actually kind of brought before the Jewish religious council, and they're saying, like, you can't you can't talk about these things anymore. And uh, they say, hey, we can only speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. We, we just have to tell the truth. This is an amazing story that's happened about this death of Jesus and his resurrection from the, the grave, and we've seen him, and he's alive, and that means he is who he says he is. He is God. He is the Messiah. We have to talk about this. We have to talk about it. And so they go on and do, continue to preach with boldness, and then eventually they are kind of thrown into, uh, into jail. Now notice what, uh, what it says in verse 17 of Acts chapter 5. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Okay? Verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to all the people, all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered in the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So here is this miraculous event, the angel of the Lord showing up for them while they're in prison and he opens the prison doors and then he says now go and speak go and share the good news that must have been quite an experience put yourself in the the apostle's sandals here for a moment and think of what it would be like to be locked up into jail and then have the angel of the lord say here i'm opening the door go out of this prison and now look you get the opportunity to speak that must have been pretty formative for them And so, as they were powerlessly sitting there in prison, God shows up, he opens the door, and then the gospel goes forth. They preach this life, the life of the gospel. The same thing happens, now I want you to turn to Acts chapter 16. The same thing happens to Peter. So, this happened to Paul and and to John. Now you have the same thing happening to, uh, excuse me, Peter and John happening with Paul and Silas. Okay, and uh, Acts, starting about Acts chapter uh, 16, verse 16, you have Paul and Silas, and they uh, go to, uh, they start to uh, preach the word here in the city of Philippi, and then notice what it says in verse 25, at about midnight, they were were actually also uh, captured and thrown into jail, notice back into verse 21 twenty-two. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave them orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And so as Paul and Silas are there, it says, verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas and he brought them out and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. So here you have a very similar event. In the first case, it was an angel of the Lord goes and shows up and opens up the prison doors and says, go speak. In this case, you have an earthquake. And let's let's not kid ourselves. This is not just some natural phenomenon that just happened to have happened. The Lord had directed this so that the foundations were shaken and the doors would open. And as a result of that, they brought them out and they said, and just to be clear, like you don't even have to give them the command, like go and preach the gospel. The guy goes, what must I do to be saved? Open door, opportunity for the gospel to go out. So I think what what you see happening in the rest of the New Testament is these uh, words. The key feature of that event, those events being an open door, then becomes kind of a code word or a metaphor for the opportunity of of God creating an opportunity for you to share the gospel with others. Let me show you a couple of other uses of this term. Acts chapter 14. When they had arrived and gathered together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for, and the reason why, for a wide door of effective work has been opened to me. This metaphor of open door kind of becomes synonymous with, hey, the opportunity for God to bring the gospel to these other peoples is is right here before us. Again, he writes to the church in Corinth. And um, uh, again, he says... Uh, that he came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ. And and in this, he says, and the reason why this happened is because a door has been opened for me in the Lord. Lastly, he writes to the Colossians, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of of Christ on which uh, on account of which I am in prison. So Jesus through John Through the angel to the Philadelphian church is saying, behold, I have set before you an open door. Which no one is able to shut. So putting those things together, you're saying, Jesus is saying to them, I have opened an opportunity for you. To bear witness to the gospel of Christ. And then putting it even together with our first question. And I've done this because or since or even though you have little power. Yet you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. I think that's the way it makes this. Behold, I have opened a door. Clause makes sense with what Jesus is saying here. Or if I paraphrase it this way: Even though you have little power, you have kept my word and have not denied me. And in light of that, I will open the door of opportunity for you to reach those who need to hear the gospel, the word of life. Okay. So here's the main point. Jesus uses the powerless. but faithful to reach the lost. It's one point kids. I know a lot of the kids write these down in their little notebooks. Here it is. Jesus uses the powerless, but faithful to reach the lost. Remember faithful because you have kept my word. You have not denied my name. So those who trust not in their own strength, but trust in God's and powerless. This is just how God works, isn't it? All through the Bible that God chooses to use the weak and the powerless to demonstrate his strength. Friends, it is not by our power. Or influence or talent or abilities or prestige that the people of this world are reached with the gospel it's not by power it's not by influence the Philadelphian church of these seven churches was probably the least influential the least powerful and the church there was uh, was the was the weakest And Jesus says, in the midst of your powerlessness, you have an open door. And the reason you have an open door is because it doesn't depend on you and your power. It depends on me. It depends on me and my power. If you would just be faithful. Where's the power? Romans 1, 16. Familiar verse. Paul writes... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. For everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the gospel is the power of God. You are powerless. The gospel is powerful. Same Greek word that Jesus uses here. We often tend to think that our effectiveness in sharing the good news of the gospel depends on the effectiveness of our communication. How many of you are tempted to think that? Or it's dependent upon your creativity or your innovation. Friends, no. No. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's not by our power, influence, talent, abilities, prestige, our creativity, our communication. It's not based on our innovation. The power of the gospel in doing its work resides in the gospel itself. Paul writing to the Corinthians. And he's entering into a debate here in chapter 1. Some are saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, and then some, I I follow Christ, you know. And Paul's like, you know what, there's factions breaking out here among all of you, that's just not good. And then he goes on to explain about, he, he connects their problem with the gospel. And notice what he says in verse... Uh, verses, uh, let's, we'll start in 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. He's like, I'm, I'm glad I'm not, I'm not part of this whole division thing here. We need to figure this out. He goes, I did baptize also the household of Stephanas, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. Then verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Notice that word "lest." Okay. Think of it like this. If you did this, the result of this would be this. So if you deliberately seek to add eloquent words of wisdom to augment the preaching of the gospel, you empty the gospel. You empty the the cross of Christ of its power. If you if you think your presentation of the good news of Christ is improved in any way by cleverness, wisdom, creativity, uh, clever sermon series titles, whatever you're 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 at risk of emptying the cross of its power. Paul goes on verse 18 for okay, the reason of which the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to uh, us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The gospel from a worldly perspective. From an unregenerate person's perspective is nonsense, especially in this day. It's a stumbling block to to Jews. It's foolishness to Greeks. What? No, you know, gods don't die to save human people. What? Like it was foolishness to them. And Paul rejoices in this fact. Yeah. Yeah. It's a foolish, it sounds foolish from the world, in the world's ears. But God chose to do it this way. So that he could subvert our whole concept of worldly wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22. For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. He continues, verse 26, and, and he talks about it from their own personal experience, too. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise. According to worldly standards. How many of you, show of hands, think that that you're in the upper echelons of wisdom in terms of worldly standards? One. I say that hand, Brent. Yeah. (laughs) Well, then you accepted not many of you (laughs) would have considered yourself wise by worldly standards. Paul says the same thing to them. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Look at this. If the problem, if the human. Humanity's main sin problem is arrogance. Thinking of myself as my own God, forgetting God and his standards, and placing myself as the ruler over my world. God goes, okay, I think we need a little humbling lesson here, right? And how... How more subversive to the boasting in God, uh, the boasting of human wisdom and human uh, knowledge and, and those sorts of things. What better way to subvert that than to preach Christ crucified? God, who's come into human flesh, who is beaten, nailed to a cross, the gospel. Begins with a God who is crucified. A God who dies. For you. So that there's nothing you can do. To boast in. It's completely his work. God has chosen the weak of the world. To demonstrate his power. And this is just the way it works. Think of. Think of Moses. Moses. The weakness of Moses. I can't speak. Okay, fine. Well, I'll get your, get your brother in here, but you're going to end up speaking it anyway. Think of, of, uh, of Gideon. They're conquering victories with just the smallest number of people. Why? Because they, they lapped in a certain way and the other guys didn't, and so that was key to anything. God goes, no, that's a smaller number. That's why I want to use the smaller number of people to demonstrate my power. What about Samson and his hair being a sign of his strength? And yet that hair is hacked off. And it's in when that hair is hacked off and he's in his weakness is when he destroys the the Philistines. What about David? I love the story of when David is anointed king, right? The reason Saul is chosen as king is because he's head and shoulders over everybody else. He looks kingly. Right. And so the word of the Lord uh, comes and says, you need to go and you need to go to the, the house of Jesse. I, I've got my anointed king to replace him is, is there. And so they try out the first guy big. No, it's not it. Second guy. Not it. So third guy. Not it. And finally, they brought out all of the candidates who would have been kingly. And he's like, you got anybody else? Well, just little David. That's the one. It's how God works. That's how God works. All examples of weak men, weak women being used by God to demonstrate the power of God. Jesus uses the powerless but faithful to reach the lost. Do you think that you're too powerless for God to use you to change someone's eternity? Do you think that you're not eloquent enough? For God to use you to take a dead person, somebody who is dead, and make them alive? Do you think that you aren't wise enough or clever enough or strong enough? Great. Awesome. Because that's right where God wants you. That's right where God can use you. It is in that moment of your recognizing and acknowledging your strength and yet resolving that God's going to have to do this. God's going to have to show up. God's going to have to perform a miracle. He's going to have to be powerful. When you do that, He becomes his strength is manifested, and then you become strong in that way. Okay? Jesus has... And here's how this works, by the way. So this is so I, maybe I I'm kind of fooling you a little bit. There maybe is a second point here. Uh, so we have to wait for the next one point sermon the next time that'll happen. So here's a second i And I'll, I'll add this to it. It doesn't on the slide, but it's related to this. Jesus has sovereign control over who enters the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has sovereign control over who enters the kingdom of heaven. This takes us back to Jesus description of himself in verse seven. Okay, so back to Revelation 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One and the True One. That's just another way of saying um, the Holy One and the True One, or the Holy One and the Righteous One is used in the Old Testament in a couple of places to refer to God. So here Jesus is claiming, uh, because these are the words of Jesus, the Holy One and the True One, it's basically a claim to that he is God. But it's this next part that's that's interesting here. Who has the key of David who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no, who, no one will open. Okay? Right? Because that's why you're like, wait, I just read that. because Yes, we read that in verse 8. Remember, he says, behold, I've opened the door for you. And that's coming. I've opened the door of opportunity for you to share the gospel. And that's because what I've just said in verse 7 about who I am. I have the key of David. Who opens and no one shuts and no one and shuts and no one opens. I have the keys to say messianic kingdom. Okay. Jesus is the king. So Jesus has, has the key. Now uh, I I didn't bring a, I should have brought a picture of what a key looked like to unlock like ancient uh, household doors in, in like first century time. It would be like this big wooden block like this and then like a long metal thing it kind of looks like a key today with the different tines and stuff but bent metal pieces like that and um and it would kind of get put into the door and turn work mechanism just similar to what keys and locks we have today if we still have those i know a lot of people just have push button door things right but it's a big wooden block like this and then usually there's one person because you can't just go to the you know the Jerusalem Lows and get copies of those made. You would have only one, and the person who had uh, the the possession of that had huge authority. So when somebody had the keys of something, you know whatever it was, that means they had authority on behalf of the king to do negotiations. And sometimes they would wear it on like their shoulders. You know, it's kind of like yeah, I got I got the big wooden block key on my shoulder. I'm the one who has authority, right? Um, and if you're sitting here kind of wondering now, what is this key of David? What does that mean? Um, again, like I've said with our uh, for our interpreting revelation class, check your cross references. It's probably some reference to the Old Testament somewhere. And sure enough, there there is. In Second Kings, chapter 10, King Hezekiah, king of Jerusalem, he's being invaded by or attempting to be evaded by the the king of of Assyria. And his armies kind of surround Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah has a couple of representatives that go out and negotiate with uh, the Assyrian commanders. And the two people's names are uh, Shebna and Eliakim. Okay? And those two, after hearing the threat from the Assyrian, uh, the Assyrian commander, they go back and they want to seek a word from the Lord because the Syrian commander is saying, we're going to, to uh, imprison you in here. You're going to be, um, he says some it's a fascinating story. Kids, you'll love this story. Go read this story. Some, you know, some, some dirty words in there. You go read it. It's, it's very interesting. Um, and so these two go to Isaiah and Isaiah gives them a word and says, don't listen. Don't listen to those guys. Continue to have faith in the Lord. But in Isaiah 22, he kind of gives a prophecy and he makes reference to these two. And the Shebna character kind of is like, I- I'm going to kick this guy out. Eliakim becomes the model of faithfulness and an example. So Isaiah 22, he says these words. I will thrust you, Shebna, from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit Your authority to his hand. And he will be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. uh, Judah, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. Jesus' words, he's taking those very words from Isaiah chapter 22 to speak about this guy Eliakim. He has all authority to deal on behalf of the king. Jesus is saying, I have all authority to deal on behalf of the king because I am the king. And because I have the keys to, the keys of David, I have the keys on who it is who has admitted into the kingdom and who doesn't. That lies on me. And I'm opening the door for you. Friends, your power in conveying the gospel doesn't rely on you. It relies on you being faithful and sharing the word of the gospel and and just stating the, the story of the gospel. But its transformative power resides in Christ. Jesus uses the powerless but faithful to reach the lost. Jesus has has the key and your faithfulness to his word and your simple pronouncement of it, no matter how weak or how powerless or insignificant you are, Jesus will bring those he chooses and calls into his kingdom. Friends, do you feel like you're weak and powerless in the face of trying to share the good news with someone else? Let's heed the word of Jesus to the church in Philadelphia. I know you're powerless. But your power in sharing the gospel, your power in having this open door open to you, it doesn't reside with you, it resides with me. Remain faithful to me. Hold fast to my word. Keep my name. And even though you're powerless, the power of God will do its work. Friends, we may seem, you may individually seem weak or powerless. Take encouragement from the church of Philadelphia. And we collectively may seem like we don't have as much innovation or influence. But we have the power of the gospel. Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for reminding us of our powerlessness. And thank you that you remind us that when we are weak, we become strong because you are, your strength and your power is demonstrated in your work. God, as we think about the mission that you've called us to of making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything that you have commanded us. that Jesus the mission that you've given us that to to know you and to make you known that we may not have the the earthly power and resources to make it happen but we know that you do and so Jesus we ask you to do a work through us what an honor it is that you would choose to have your servants that you would call us to the task that you call us to. And yet we acknowledge that it's not in our power. It's only in you. And so, God, we ask that you would through your power, demonstrate your power through us in our weakness. God, we pray that your word would go out from, from us to reach those around us who need to hear this gospel. Jesus, we ask you to use us in our weakness to demonstrate your power. And this we pray in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. Brothers and sisters, um, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ And the love of God our Father. And the fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go.